Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetic industry. This is episode 310. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today is Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. Hi, Perry. It's good to see you. I'm burning up there in LA, I see. <laughs> yes. I think everywhere is scorched, though. Well, uh, while you've tuned in, we're going to answer a few questions on the show and do a little beauty science news. And the questions we're going to be answering, does the cool air function on hair dryers help set hairstyles? Does it cool you off in, uh, in the hot summers <laughs> of LA, too? Probably not enough. I don't recommend right. it. Right. What makes a sunscreen water resistant? Is there a shampoo that can help with eczema? And what do we think of Dr. Sam Bunting's skincare products? But first, Valerie, some of our general chit-chat. How are you today? You know, I'm doing okay. Uh, today's the two-year anniversary that my beloved Olive passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. So a little sad day in the cosmetic chemist household. Yeah, that's that's too bad. It's always always sad when a uh, a pet or really any family member or friend passes away. Yeah, so we're just gonna celebrate him today. Well, that's fun. You know, that yeah. does remind me of a book I just finished reading called Four Thousand Weeks. Okay, I'm trying to do the math. How how much time that is? It it refers to the four four thousand weeks is like of an approximate average of a person's lifespan. Okay, and it's, all right. It's a time management book, um, and they go through and uh, essentially try to convince you that uh, the best way to manage your time is to uh, figure out the stuff you want to do and come to the realization that there's a lot you're not going to be able to do. <laughs> so wow, once you well, embrace what you can't do, <laughs> you'll be happy. It sounds interesting. You know, I'm going to be 40 in September, and I'm just kind of crunching the numbers here on that. And I've consumed over half my 4,000 weeks. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what's going to happen to me in 185 days? What? That is going to be the official midpoint of my life. Okay. Because, you see, I've decided that I'm living until November 11th, 2076. Okay. So, which put me at 107. So, yeah, uh, yeah, we're doing the math there. Yeah. So, I have, uh, like, right now I have uh, 19,836 days left to uh, be on this planet and make Beauty Brains podcast episodes. <laughs> <laughs> but 185 days from now, my midpoint year. So, I'm going to have a big, big celebratory moment then. Oh, good. Good. Hopefully, I'll be there celebrating with you living uh, past yeah. 4,000 weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. That'll get us to about 5,500 weeks or something. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. All right. Are we ready for some beauty science news? Yeah. This first story I saw, it was kind of making the rounds among the cosmetic chemist enclave on the internet. And essentially, (laughs) J&J has launched a new baby brand. The baby brand is called Vivi and Bloom, and it's the first one that they've launched in the company's, uh, you know, 
28 years history. You know, of course, Johnson & Johnson has the famous J&J baby shampoo, which yeah. is still an iconic product and hasn't really changed that much, although they did change the preservative uh, a few years yeah. ago. But uh, that one came out like in the 1960s. So it's a very popular brand. They're launching this new brand for the Gen Z and millennial parents. And what's... What is interesting about it is, you know, they're, of course, going to be selling it through Walmart and Amazon and various drugstore chains. But what I find most interesting is that in their marketing, they uh, they contend in their marketing that all their products were formulated without parabens, sulfates and dyes. But even worse, they were verified by the environmental working group. Um, <laughs> so essentially, they're taking a clean beauty approach to products that have to be safe anyway, but somehow they need, uh, somehow the toxicologists that work for J&J aren't good enough, but they get the environmental working group in there and get their seal of approval. And I guess that's going to help with marketing. Well, I'd first like to comment that they uh, developed it with Gen Z parents. Am I old or something? Because I'm like Gen Z people are parents now. Well, uh, what does Gen Z start? Is that 1990? It's mid. It, yeah, it's like late 90s, like 98, 97. 97 looking it up here. So that puts someone at 25 this year. I guess they could be parents, but woo! Sure, 25. Now, wait a second. That's like, the older end of it. Wouldn't millennials be at the turn of the century, the 2000? I think that's the, the youngest millennials. I think the older millennials are... 80s it's a it's a pretty expansive oh yeah well there you go well so millennials came after gen xers because i'm a gen xer yeah gen x millennial gen z so i feel like they probably mostly tested this with millennials yeah they would have the money i guess yeah but what's interesting to me about that statement that they're you know they're promoting that for is it almost connotes that Millennials and Gen Zers have approved this line or helped create it, you know, somehow like a an endorsement. It sure, you know, they could have provided feedback and it could have not been great feedback, right? And J and J said, "Now we're going to do what we want anyway." Well, I imagine what happened though is that they they said they developed with a community of two hundred and thirty eight diverse millennial and Gen Z parents. I imagine what they did is they would set up some online place and so online consumer research and then ask some questions and kind of did what they yeah. wanted, right? That's, yeah. That's kind of how these things work. Now, it is interesting to me when a company like this launches a product and they say, oh, this has no parabens, this has no sulfates and dyes, this is verified. What does that say about their products that aren't? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, good are point. their old products no good anymore? I mean, yeah. And by the way, uh, you know, I would feel better if it was verified to be safe by a toxicologist, not by the environmental working group. Yes, exactly. And you know, J&J, being a drug company, they certainly have a whole department of toxicologists who are professionally trained to do this. But no, they, uh, you know. doesn't matter what they say. It matters what EWG says. Yeah. It's hard to be not cynical when you're a cosmetic chemist (laughs) and you see stuff like this. Yeah. All right, what'd you see, Valerie? Well, there was an interesting um, article um, related to virtual try-on tools. We've talked about those a few times, and I think for the last several years, they've been 
prevalent uh, throughout basically everywhere. And yeah. there was an article, UCAM makeup expands into men's grooming with a virtual beard style try-on. So, so you use your phone and you yep. can see what you would look like in a beard? Yeah, so you, you have a picture of yourself uploaded and you kind of select uh, different different beard styles and it uh, puts it on your face. So this is UCAM. Mm-hmm. I th- oh, okay. I have this on my uh, on my phone already. Did you get the... Oh, wow. What are you doing? I, I think, uh, you know, when this first UCAM came out, I think I was looking at, you know, hey, what, what did I look like with, uh, you know, red hair or something? Oh, I think that's what you did. Yeah. We yeah. did that, yeah. Well, uh, hopefully your app is version, huh? updated and you have the beard, uh, beard try-on tool. What do you think about these, Perry? Um, do you think these apps have any big impact on, on purchasing habits for people? Well, these things are kind of clever and interesting, and it's fun to put a little filter on what you look like. But, but I do not believe that they're a good representation of, like, if, you're, if it's a subtle thing. Like on a beard, maybe you can see what, what a beard kind of looks like on you, but it's not going to be reflective of what you actually look like. Or what you can actually grow, right? Yeah. You know, these virtual try-on tools are not new. I remember in the late 90s or early 2000s, CoverGirl actually had a software program that you could download. They would send you a compact disc. Really? And you would load it into your computer and take a a picture of you. And you could uh, put different lipsticks, different eyeshadows, and different blush or even eyeliner on. And then you could uh, go to the drugstore and shop the look that you just did. And, you know, for its time, it was okay. I'm Obviously, technology has way advanced. Yeah. Uh, and you can do it live and in real time. And as you move, it moves with you, you know. But uh, I will say, I don't know that they're exactly reflective of what things look in real life on people. Just like CoverGirl way back in the early 2000s. I just don't think... It can capture every nuance, you know, capture and uh, take into consideration the light setting in which you're viewing the makeup yeah. or your application skill set. The imperfections, too. It's hard to... Uh, the computer is going to show you what it looks like perfectly, and that's not what you're going to be able to achieve. No. And so, you know, maybe someone will pick up a couple things. I don't think that this is going to be the norm in how people try products. You still want to go to... Sephora or Ulta or wherever you shop for your beauty products and try things on and oh let me look at that let me look at this right touch it feel it smell yeah. it yeah <laughs> you yep. get you miss all of that stuff uh, by just this know, digital painting I guess but they're yeah. fun to play around with like in the way that you know Instagram or Snapchat filters are yeah Valerie Time for celebrity launch news and ding 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 one of my predictions from last year actually Uh-oh. came true right who was it well remember one of my uh, predictions was pete davidson oh and no it turns out <laughs> manscaped names pete davidson a brand partner and shareholder so i guess this is this isn't exactly that he launched his own line but, but it's it's his brand now yeah, he has a shareholder. Uh, he's in this four-year partnership with this brand. He owns part of the company. And 
this is what uh, the reason I predicted this is because he was dating Kim Kardashian. I don't know if they're still yeah. on or not, but uh, yeah, you know those Kardashians are all into launching beauty lines. So I figured, oh, he must be doing this too. And indeed, now that he's left Saturday Night Live, he can focus on his uh, manscaped uh, brand. Oh my gosh! Well. <sighs> I guess we're just on trend. We're on the pulse. We know what's <laughs> yeah. going to happen, right? What's so, really yeah in the scorecard at the end of the year. Remember, Meg gave me that extra point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I did see uh, an interesting article in WWD magazine today, and it was called "Is Fame Enough to Sell Beauty?" Because huh. the gaggle of celebrity launches that are occurring is really just so excessive. You know, from Haley. Bieber to Pharrell Williams to Idris Elba to Scarlett Johansson and Lady Gaga's relaunch. It's it's really crazy just how many brands are, are popping up. And it's a combination of what? So those are actresses and actors and musicians. So just traditionally famous people are launching stuff. But so are the non-traditionally famous people like your influencers, your TikTokers yeah. and, and the likes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it looks like people are at least trying to capitalize on fame or whatever audience they've built up. So what do they think? Is fame enough to sell beauty? How are these products no, doing? it's not, because at the end of the day, these brands don't really have longevity. And I've heard from an insider, the JLo line's not doing well. Um, you know, Lady Gaga's line, I thought it would be a box office hit you know, when it initially launched on Amazon, but then they actually had to do a renaming and stage it into Sephora because it wasn't doing so great on Amazon. It's, you know, one thing the article points out, it's hard to tell because these um, launches are, we'll call them privately held. So their exact dollars and figures are unknown. But the fact that a lot of these lines that do launch don't stay around are probably indicative that fame is not enough to sell beauty. Yeah, it is kind of a different skill set, right? Uh, you, If you're an actress or you're a musician, your focus really is on doing that. It's not on marketing products. And if you want a successful beauty line, you have to market. You have to do marketing, right? Yeah. And the thing is, the celebrities aren't actually doing any of this themselves. I think it's very rare, rare where the celebrity actually is acting as the CEO and driving the brand and driving the departments and managing the day-to-day business. This article does point out, and we already knew this, Perry, that these celebrities are partnering with companies that design these brands and present them to celebrities. So they're already sketched out. And the celebrity's like, sure, I'm in love with this concept. You can, you know, use my name and probably have a little bit of say, but it's not like my company or your company where we're literally behind every decision right. and driving the strategy and the concepting for the product. So it's just different. And there's so much competition for, for the yeah. attention. And I also wonder, do, do celebrity brands have legs, like long lasting legs? I think of the brands that have been around for a long time, Olay, uh, Chanel number, what is that? Number five or number nine or, or one of like, Old Spice, the yeah. like those any celebrity that those would have been based on are long gone. Yep. And but they're still around. But I can't think of any celebrity brand that has just lasted for a really long time. I I cannot think of one. No. Uh, maybe people out there in beauty brains land 
uh, can can think of someone. I, I can't think of any right now. So yeah. maybe these will be around for a couple of years, but uh, the new crop of famous people will be launching their own lines. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's head over and answer some questions. Valerie, we have a ton of questions that came in from our patrons. Ooh. And if you're interested in getting your question priority answered, you can become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash the beauty brains and subscribe at any level we we do always answer our patron questions so as best we can and uh you get first crack at uh priority so here's the first one comes to us from claire claire says dear beauty brains thank you so much for answering my previous questions i have another many hair dryers have a cool function where cool air is supposed to be the final step to set a style does this really work? I've tried several times and didn't notice any major differences. Keep up the great work. Hmm. Valerie, does your hair dryer have a cool setting? It does. It's a pretty standard feature. You know what? I I don't have a hair dryer, so <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, but I bet your wife does. She does, yeah. And so I imagine the cool function is just they have the fan and they don't have the heating coil on right correct so the air is drastically cooler than when the dryer uh, heat source is working right Mm -hmm. now i looked a little bit into this and i know at least what stylists say they say the cool air is gonna lock in your hairstyle Mm -hmm. but you know i'm just thinking it through because i have no experience in this beyond using it to test tresses and stuff but unless you're like icing your hair or something like it's that cold is this really going to make much difference to lock in your style i don't know and there's not a lot of what you would call credible evidence uh, out there on the internet no one you know no organization is doing these peer-reviewed studies uh you know to study this that's probably some internal testing that's being done but i will say if i had to logically think it through I would say in theory, it should work because when you apply heat to hair, you're breaking some of these, you know, we'll call inter, um, interactive bonds within the hair. The van der Waals forces and the van der Waals and hydrogen bonds. Weaker bonds, yeah. Exactly. Those are being, uh, those interactions are being broken or disrupted in the hair when heat is applied. And this also allows your hair to be a little bit more malleable. So, I'm thinking of a curling iron, not necessarily a hair dryer, but sure. when a hairstylist takes a curling iron, or even if they're using a hair dryer and they round brush style your hair, and the hair coils and changes shape a little bit, when it's still hot, they can move the curl around or they can kind of twist the hair and set it where they want it to be. And then it needs to cool like that right. in order for these hydrogen bonds and van der Waals forces to kind of lock the hair in its new shape. So in theory, if hair can be malleable when it's hot, will this cool air help set it a little bit faster? And I would say, yeah, but if you're just flat out, you know, straight, you know, blow drying your hair, you're not reshaping it. I would say it probably is not going to provide much benefit. Yeah. I I think it does provide a, A good story you know and also the after you've done the hot air on your in your scalp that could probably the cool air might make it feel good so it's going to add to the experience i'm just not sure how much real impact it's going to have on the final style 
Yeah. For me, it's mostly a nuisance because if you are blow drying your hair and then you accidentally hit it, then you're like, Ugh, and then you kind of have to stop and like unhit it. Oh, <laughs> that's a uh, millennial problems. There, <laughs> First world problems. Yeah. First world. Oh my gosh. Hey, we have an audio question. Let's go to that one. Hi, Beauty Brains. I'm a newish listener. Your podcast is amazing. I've listened back to a lot of the older episodes and have learned so much. Um, and I have rosacea and very reactive skin. So the book Beyond Soap that you've recommended, or I think Valerie had read, was has been really, really helpful too. So I appreciate everything you do. So here's my question. I've been on a quest to find a uh, sunscreen, especially for my face, that I can tolerate and wear every day because my dermatologist has emphasized how important that is. And I found a couple I really like, but I realized that they're not water resistant. And I just wondered, like, what makes a sunscreen water resistant? And when do you really need to wear one? Like, obviously at the beach, I guess, but are there other situations where I really should wear one that's water resistant, even if it's not my favorite? Thank you. Well, Valerie, first you get the shout out for the good recommendation of... Yeah, you know, I actually almost mentioned this book, uh, Beyond Soap by Dr. Sandy Scottnicki, last episode. And I was like, don't do it, don't do it, because I've just like <laughs> brought it up so many times. But it was like a perfect recommendation for one of the questions we got. But I'm glad that Kristen was able to read the book and get valuable information out of it. Yeah. Okay, to her question about water-resistant sunscreens, do you use a water-resistant sunscreen? I don't. Uh, I'll tell you why. Because okay. I am not going out into water. I'm not exercising. And kind of at the end of the day, you have to reapply sunscreen every couple hours anyway. I'm not doing anything in those two hours that would cause me to reapply it sooner or where, where I need it to last through that. It's already kind of lasting. I think this does bring up one of the main issues though with water resistant sunscreens is they just don't feel as good right yeah ideally you would always wear a water resistant sunscreen because you know even if you're not working out and you're not going into the water you are going to be sweating especially if it's hot out and that well i guess sweat... if you're a gross guy like perry <laughs> yeah, you would be sweating or mr cosmetic exactly. chemist but i'm not sweating <laughs> no but you know there's micro sweat right yeah yeah that's true you're just secreting sebum throughout the day. I think I'm going to trademark that micro sweat. That's going to be the new <laughs> protect yourself from to micro prevent sweat. micro sweating. Right, we're but, marketers. Uh, so I would say, but ideally, you would always want to use a water resistant formula. But the reason people don't is because they don't feel good. Right? No, I mean mm -mm. mostly compared to a, a you know a standard sunscreen, they just don't feel good, and mostly because it's the way they are formulated. Well, not to shame chemists, uh, you know, they have to be formulated a certain way in order to be water resistant because you don't want this protective film on your skin to be disrupted. So the film has to be really robust, really sturdy, resistant to water, sweat, oils, that sort of thing. And there are a few of ways you can create more water resistant formulations. One of them is to make a completely anhydrous formula where there's no water present in the first place, right? So it's naturally kind of water repellent. And these are yeah. probably like really hard to get off because you have to, just like if you had oil on your skin, uh, imagine you have an oily film on your skin. So you're going to have to use a really good cleanser to get this one off. Not going to budge. Right, those would be the most effective and like 
I mean, you could really make a sunscreen just using like petrolatum or dimethicone, and yeah, that's not <laughs> going to come off, right? So, in fact, those are used to protect. There are these uh, chemical protectant lotions. Yeah. Uh, and essentially, that's what it is. You put it on your hands, and then you could put water or anything aqueous on your hand, and it'll just essentially bead off. Yep. That also does remind me of we had this VO5 hairdressing, which is, okay. you know, the, the five is petrolatum, mineral oil, and then yep. just oil, lanolin, that kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> you're supposed to put like a little tiny dab and rub it in your hands and run it through your hair. Well, someone, we once had a letter from somebody who used it as a regular conditioner. So they took a whole big cloth and put it. Oh and my gosh. They called the company after washing their hair like four times because it didn't come out. <laughs> oh my gosh. Did the VO stand for very oily, very oily five? Uh, I think it stood for a vital essential oil five. Oh, okay. <laughs> it changed over it changed over time. So. Well, to me that's very oily. So that's one way to make it water resistant is you just make it a completely oily formula that won't come off with water. But you will still have to reapply it every two hours according to FDA guidelines. Right. <laughs> but there are other ways of creating a water-resistant formula, and that's to create a water-in-oil emulsion. Usually, uh, traditional emulsions are where you take the oil and you put it in water, but in this case, you're taking water and putting it in oil. So it's a predominantly oily formula, but it has a little bit of water uh, in there either to enhance the aesthetics or to get some water-soluble ingredients in there. And this is great because you can still have water in there, but you still have this water resistant film forming polymers that will help, you know, disperse the sunscreen actives evenly over the skin, help it right. adhere to your skin and boost the SPF value. Another trick that you can do in formula is you can take some water insoluble stuff, uh, dissolve it in say like alcohol or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so even when you're using a mostly water formula, these ingredients will plate out onto the skin, into the film, and they're just, since they're insoluble in water, the alcohol sort of evaporates off, and so then they aren't going to come off the skin as easy. So that's another uh, thing that, that we can do in formulating. But basically, if you want to make a water-resistant sunscreen, you just make it harder for it to be removed with water, which also means it's harder to be removed in general. So you have to shower more often when you, yeah. when you have this on. Yeah. So conversely, normal sunscreens that don't have a water resistant claim, you know, probably are standard issue or traditional water and oil emulsions or oil and water emulsions, but they still have film forming polymers in them or some kind of film formers to help create an even layer of sunscreen on the skin to protect it. The difference is it may not truly be water resistant or honestly, they didn't do the testing to advertise right. water resistance because that's actually a separate test that you would run over a non-water resistant claim. And so it could be that the sunscreen still has some level of water resistance. It's just not being advertised. Yeah. And, you know, of course, when do you need to wear one... I think you you nailed it when you're going swimming or whenever you're going to be exposed to a lot of water. It's a good idea to wear one. On the other hand, if you're if you put on sunscreen after you've been exposed to water rather than waiting for the 2 hours, you know, you're the one you the non-water resistant one is still going to work. Yeah, the most important thing is you're just wearing one and I would personally pick one that feels really nice on the skin 
that you're going to love and that you're willing to reapply because that's the one you're going to have better adoption to using and get the value from versus an icky formula you don't really like. So you skimp on the application or try not to reapply it. You know, you'll be proud of me. I went golfing yesterday and uh, I wore sunscreen. Now, did you wear a new sunscreen or did you use the sunscreen that's been in your golf bag for nine years? Uh, It's only been like two years and I shook (laughs) it up before I used it. (laughs) It's only separated a little bit. (laughs) Baby steps, baby Uh, baby steps. You know the worst thing about it? So I wear a wedding ring and I wear a watch. And then you put this sunscreen on and it gets all over your ring and get under your thing. And then you got to take the watch off and your hands are slippery and you got to put the watch back on. Yep. Hey, speaking of watch, I have a, a really fabulous tan watch here. <laughs> watch Me <tan>. too. <laughs> Just from, uh, yeah, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. Clearly Summertime. I don't wear enough sunscreen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our next question from one of our patrons, Lorena. Lorena asks, hi, Beauty Brains. I really need your help. Recently, I've been dealing with scalp eczema. I'm looking into shampoos that can help and found out about Hair Story in a podcast, specifically their new wash original. We talked about Hair Story in the past. We've talked about them a few times, yeah. Yeah. People claim that it can help calm an irritated scalp. I see a bunch of oils and plants, and I'm doubtful. The other product that seems very interesting is from Gladskin, which is actually marketed specifically for eczema, the Shampoo Bar. Now, my derm was not very helpful in terms of recommendations, except for the Find a Mild Shampoo recommendation. Sounds like uh, standard medicine, right? (laughs) I hope you can offer some guidance since I'm at a loss now. I have been using the same shampoos for years, and trying to change is giving me a headache on top of the itchy scalp. Love your show. Well, thanks, Lorena. Okay, two products asked about here, Valerie. But first... um. Do you do you have an eczema issues with this and your scalp or anything? I don't, but Mr. Cosmetic Chemist does. Oh, there you go. So a little bit of experience. So the yeah. first one we actually has talked about hair story. We talked about that. I don't know about you know forty episodes ago. <laughs> go through our archives and you can find it. Uh, but uh, so this product is a shampoo and. They list a shampoo in air quotes. I think it's kind of like a creamy conditioner. Oh, right. Yeah, this is uh, one of those co-washes. But for cleansing, I see what she says. Cleansing says they have peppermint oil, sunflower seed oil, evening. First of all, people, why are there oils in a shampoo? (laughs) Quote, unquote, (laughs) shampoo. That's that's not you shouldn't have oil in your shampoo. Shampoos remove the oil. But that that's just a formulation. formulating issue I have. But. Another issue I have as far as if you're trying to make a gentle shampoo, putting essential oils and oils in it that have the potential to be irritating, that doesn't seem like a good idea. No, it does not. There's a lot of stuff in this formula that honestly, if you removed it, the product would probably perform the same. So there's just a lot of things where it's like, you know, why are you even putting this in there? I mean, they're calling chamomile extract a non-key ingredient why even have it in there i mean that's just my opinion but i'm a minimalist formulator i try not to put things in there that don't need to be in there Uh, but there are a lot of essential oils in this product and if you have sensitive skin if you have rosacea if you're prone to eczema i I probably would not recommend a product with essential oils or um, superfluous plant extracts 
yeah, the plant extracts can be fine for a lot of people, but of all the things that you're going to have allergic reaction to, the first thing you would look at are plant extracts and essential oils, even mm -hmm. before you'd look at synthetic ingredients. And that's mainly because we evolved alongside these plants and plants use oils and other compounds to fight off predators or uh, organisms that might harm it. And that's why natural ingredients, we've often, often develop uh, allergic reactions and sensitivity to these things like poison ivy, for example, mm -hmm. but even some of these other ingredients. And so that's, that's why natural ingredients can often be more irritating than synthetic ingredients, which our bodies have not developed any sort of reaction to. So I, yeah. I wouldn't for eczema, this does not seem like the product to go with. Yeah. Well, the shampoo bar is interesting because it's a simple formula. It has oat kernel flour and oat kernel oil in it. And to me, that's interesting. Do you know why, Perry? I, I vaguely recall that that is in some sort of monograph or something about skin. I, I know Avino kind of makes a big deal about that. Uh, yeah, uh, they do. In their line, right? Yeah, that's right, Perry. Colloidal oatmeal is actually approved as monographed by the FDA for um, helping calm inflammation in um, skin or helping itchy skin. Yeah, it says it's uh, for products containing... Uh, uh, temporarily protects and helps relieve minor skin irritation. Exactly. And so by using oat kernel flour and oat kernel oil, which still have some of the beneficial compounds that colloidal oatmeal would have, this uh, brand is capitalizing on, on you know, the benefits that the colloidal oatmeal would have by putting those two in there. And, and going to Aveeno, I actually, um, you know, if they have a shampoo, I actually probably would recommend that. You know, we often laugh about the marketing that brands do, but Aveeno is actually, it's really built on, I guess we'll call it research and science that oatmeal has. And they use an oat extract that's called an oat vinanthramide extract. And you would just find it on an ingredient list as oat kernel extract. Um, it actually has a lot of really good uh, data behind it, low use level, and it's extremely expensive, um, but there's a lot of good clinical data behind it. You know, if I were a formulator um, looking sure. to use it, sure. I, I probably would use that. I know a lot of people also use beta-glucan derived from oat, uh, which is also beneficial in helping skin. So you could look for uh, beta-glucan, but I probably honestly would more go for the oat ingredients, but I, I would use you know, a brand that's either telling you how much they have, preferably a monograph 2% colloidal oatmeal, um, or I would, you know, probably just reach for the Aveeno stuff because they, sure. you know, are a bigger brand and probably have validated all the claims that they are making. Yeah, I would say about this shampoo bar, and while the oat is, while the colloidal oat is monographed ingredient, when you do that, it becomes an over-the-counter drug and it mm -hmm. has to take some special labeling that you would see you know you see drug facts and all this product does not have that so if they are if they are doing it they're, they haven't gone through the official formulation challenge of making an over-the-counter drug so it might not be there in the levels that's going to have much of effect but you know may on the other hand maybe it's helpful maybe like shampoo bars but your advice to check out what avino has 
is probably a good one, despite J&J's uh, working with the EWG to get their products yeah, verified. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then also, I would just go back to your derm and ask if a medicated shampoo, like a 1% ketoconazole shampoo that you can buy over the counter, is also going to help eczema. I know, you know, it may be more helpful if you have like dandruff or psoriasis, but they may say, yeah, you can use that for your eczema as well to help the itchiness. I'm not sure, but just go back to your derm and ask about medicated options. Yeah. All right. Or, you know, just take a little box of Quaker Oats and put it on your head. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You know, every so often I'll have a little packet of that fruity oatmeal. You yeah. Know those little packets. It's good sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's good, but the odor that comes off of this this plate, this food, my wife does not like uh the oatmeal smell, especially the bananas and cream and the strawberries and cream. Oh, yeah. It's so a little strong. Every time I make some, she's like, did you make that nasty oatmeal stuff? That's <laughs> I, funny. I like yeah. yeah I, needed a, I needed a hair treatment. All yeah. right. Our last question comes to us from Helene. She says, hi, guys. Thanks you for everything you share with all of us. What do you think of Dr. Sam Bunting's skincare products? Thank you and love your show. Sam hmm. Bunting. I hadn't heard of this line. I haven't. I, I should point out that I originally thought Sam was like uh, a male, but Sam is Samantha, actually. So that's uh, Dr. Samantha Bunting's hair, skincare products, at least the one I found. Yeah. And uh, I haven't heard of them, but they are a UK brand. And uh, Dr. Bunting is a UK dermatologist, and she has, I guess, created this line to bring her treatment systems to your home. Yeah, and in looking at that, whenever you look at, you know, this is a brand, I've not used the products. So when I look to evaluate a, a, something like this, you know, we can't use every product. So how do, we're going to have to figure out some way to evaluate products, uh, even if we haven't tried it. So all we can do is give like a technical assessment on, the ingredients used, the claims made, and maybe the price so we can look at value. So whenever I look at a, a brand like this that I don't know, the first thing I look at is what's the price of these things? And if things are really expensive, that already starts to reduce the value proposition to me because I know the price that formulas cost about how much they cost to make, yep. which you know is not always that much. And I know how much profit about somebody is making based on the well, the amount that they're charging. Not that really expensive stuff isn't uh, isn't great to use. They're great products, of course, but you're probably overpaying for a lot of stuff. So the first thing I look at is pricing. And for me, when I'm looking at pricing, I go to the cleansers because I know yep. cleansers are generally less expensive than moisturizers and you know serums and that kind of thing. So this cleanser uh, is, it's a, I mean, it's it's high, highly priced. So it's, uh, what, for 6.8 ounces, $22. I mean, I guess that's not terrible. It's I mean, you could find less expensive things, but it's not terrible. But there's also more expensive cleansers. Although Barbara, Barbara Sturm's cleanser is also $22. I just wanted to oh. point that out. 
interesting. I wonder if there's some sort of formula that, uh, you know, some. Or if she's inspired by Dr. Barbara Sturm. Uh, that could be that. As far as the technology goes, uh, the main thing in this cleanser is the capric caprylic glycerides and uh, cocoa uh, And It's not a, a traditional cleanser. This is a, you know, more of like a gel serum. And yeah. you'd be putting it on your face to lightly emulsify the skin. Yeah, so it's going to be super gentle. I, you're not going to remove a lot of makeup with this product, right? Um, so, you know, I'm sure they're decently formulated products. Uh, they have a line of moisturizers. Uh, you know, they do the very slick sort of minimalist clinical looking packaging. But the other interesting thing, you know, for me, if if I saw a dermatologist line and they didn't have transparent clinical testing on the website, I probably would say these are just average products. It's a dermatologist, you know, putting their name on something. A cosmetic right. chemist has formulated it. And, you know, the products are probably perfectly fine. But, um, you know, clinical data to me would be really really key, especially for a dermatologist brand. Yeah, and I do not see that kind of thing here, right? No. Mm -mm. But the products look so, nice. I mean, I would totally try them. Sure. Just, sure. Uh, if, if you know, are they, sent, you know? Yeah, are they better than something else you can get on the market? You know, I don't know. Yeah, there's nothing about this line from the look and from the ingredients and the formulas that, that shouts, oh, this is different, this is special. It just yeah. shouts like, yeah, this is probably probably pretty decent. Yeah. So, so there you go. Our <laughs> ringing endorsement from the Beauty Brains, this yeah. is probably pretty decent. <laughs> yeah. You might not be disappointed, but also you might not like it. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you know what you might not like either? So that, that brings us to the end of the show. Valerie's wah, got this wah. big meeting right at the top of the hour here. So yeah. We, yeah. We had a hard stop. Yeah. Well, thanks again for listening, everybody. Hey, if you get a chance, can you go over to the Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave us a review? That's going to help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. And speaking of questions, if you have one, we would love to hear your voice on the show. Just record it on your smartphone and send it by email to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. Speaking of the Beauty Brains, we are also on Patreon. If you want to support the show and keep us ad-free, unlike a lot of other podcasts that you hear, um, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe at any level. Also, don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at thebeautybrains2018. On Twitter, we're at thebeautybrains. We have a Facebook page and a TikTok. Whoa, TikTok. Pretty soon we're going to have to stop mentioning the TikTok because we're, <laughs> no, we're just not moving soon on we're it. Gonna have to, I'm going to do the, the handstand challenge on our TikTok. <laughs> oh my gosh, do not. <laughs> well, thanks again for listening, everyone. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Kittens. <laughs>